This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to be talking with you today about some of the ways in which the English language, in particular the American version of the English language, has changed and is changing, some of the challenges that those changes may present to us, and some of the ways in which we may understand that the American version of English has always been fraught, has always been beset, if you like, by misunderstanding, by uh, linguistic difference, but also by rhetoric. And so a lot of what I'm going to be doing today is not just looking at the specifics of language change, I'm going to be looking at the rhetoric of language change, the ways in which people talk about American English, the kinds of metaphors or figurative language they use, and in general, the ways in which they understand how being American is very much a linguistic as well as a social phenomenon. And so I have a few principles, if you like, that language changes and is always changing. Of course, the American language has changed and is always changing. And furthermore, that generational change is very often marked by language difference. So anyone who has children or grandchildren or anyone who's been a child will know that intergenerational communication is always a challenge. So I want to begin with a recent story from the New Yorker magazine. The writer Rebecca Mead who was born in London and had lived in the United States for many years, returned to London with her teenage child. And in this story from February 6th of 2022, she talks about what she calls the common tongue of 21st century London. Children have found their way to a new common language. And what she notices is that her child is going to school in multicultural London. And multicultural London means, in many ways, a London language which is strongly influenced by Caribbean English, strongly influenced by African idiom and Asian idiom and language, and in turn, the ways in which the students come to speak more like each other than like their homes. And so some examples that she gives that I find particularly relevant today are the ways in which the word man in what she calls multicultural London English can be both a second person, you, and also an abstract, one. So, for example, man's got to work hard, she cites, as a way of talking generally. It's an adage that is somewhat one needs to work hard. But the phrase man's got to calm down is a second person address from one person to another who may be exercised or anxious. Man's got to calm down. You have to calm down. And furthermore, she notices this wonderful grammatical change, and she quotes the linguist David Hall on what is technically called the dropping of prepositions with verbs of movement. So we could say, not, I went to the pub last night, or I went to the chicken shop, but I went pub last night, or I went chicken shop. And what Rebecca Mead calls attention to is that this is not just colloquial, but it is what we might call socially stratified, so that Well, you could say, I went pub last night, but you couldn't say, I went art gallery, because that would signal a a conflict, if you like, a tension between the colloquialism of this new grammatical phrase and the context. And so being a linguist and being a scholar, I followed up on this. And I found this wonderful article here by the linguist Julie Roberts, who says things that I think bear directly on Rebecca Mead's story, and other kinds of things that I want to share with you today. She says, like gender, ethnicity, and age, the construct of speech community is not fixed, but socially negotiated and continually changing. And what that means is that we are always living in flux. We're living in flux socially, and we're living in flux linguistically. 
And she says something which is both, well, you could argue deeply profound or incredibly banal and obvious. Within the interactions in which children and adolescents participate with their caretakers, their peers, their community, lie the possibilities of language change. Put more bluntly, children talk like the people they hang out with rather than the people trying to teach them how to talk. And in spite of our best efforts, our children will speak more like their peers or their caregivers or their friends in school than they will like us. So I want to use this as a springboard today for reflecting on generational change in the American English language and to offer what I'm calling some pressure points for views on language change. And the first of these pressure points is a wonderful passage from the introduction to Noah Webster's Dictionary of the English Language, the American Dictionary of the English Language. Now, many of us know that Webster was very important for his spelling books and his grammars, that he lived in Hartford, Connecticut, and that from the 1890s until the late 1820s, he was in many ways the arbiter of language use in American schools and in American culture. And Webster is largely responsible for things like changes in spelling between British English and American English. So Webster felt very strongly that American English should be more efficient, if you like. Uh, so, for example, color spelled C-O-L-O-U-R. Webster said it should be just spelled color, C-O-L-O-R. Or music and logic, which in the 18th and early 19th century had a K at the end of it, a CK in British spelling would only have a C in American spelling. And Webster was very interested in recording Americanisms. For example, one of the most uh, obvious Americanisms that Webster notes, and that had been noted by travelers to America really from the 1730s onward, was the way in which Americans used the word fix as a verb meaning to make dinner. I'm going to fix dinner. This is a distinctive and unique Americanism. And so in looking at new words and new phrases, this is what Webster wrote, and I'm going to read this passage. Americans had not only a right to adopt new words, but were obliged to modify the language to suit the novelty of the circumstances, geographical and political, in which they were placed. It is quite impossible to stop the progress of language. It is like the course of the Mississippi, the motion of which at times is scarcely perceptible. Yet even then it possesses a momentum quite irresistible. Words and expressions will be forced into use in spite of all the exertions of all the writers of the world. I love this passage because what Webster is doing is he's taking American political discourse in a unique way and using it to describe language. What is America? America is a nation of rights. America, if, if America is a nation of rights, if there is the Bill of Rights, if we're constantly talking about our rights, then what better way for Webster to talk about Americans as speakers and users of language than to say they have a right? Look at his phrase, adopt new words. The word adopt in American English of this time took on a new political sensibility. It was not just simply bringing someone into a family who may not have been biologically related to the family. It was adopting the Constitution. It was adopting amendments. It was adopt as a political action. So we are adopting new words. We have a right to adopt. We are obliged to modify. And what is most unique about America? The Mississippi River. And that Mississippi River as he says, the motion is constantly changing. So Webster is giving a very geographical and political specificity to the American language and the ways in which things change. Let's go forward 100 years to H.L. Mencken. 
Now, Mencken is an exceedingly controversial figure. He's famous as a journalist. He had many opinions which today would be perceived as not just unfashionable, but certainly discriminatory. Mencken is a great observer of other people, a great critic of other people, and a great satirist of other people. And in 1919, Mencken wrote a book called The American Language, which is still in print after many, many editions. And this is what Mencken has to say about American speakers. But more important than the sheer inventions, if only because more numerous, are the extensions of vocabulary by the devices of rhetoric. The American from the beginning has been the most ardent of recorded rhetoricians. His politics bristles with pungent epithets. His whole history has been bedizened with tall talk. His fundamental institutions rest far more upon brilliant phrases than upon logical ideas. He exercises continually an incomparable capacity for projecting hidden and often fantastic relationships into his speech. This is written now over a hundred years ago, and I think it will resonate with many of our experiences. But look at his language. The American, the most ardent of recorded rhetoricians. Ardent. We may think of the word ardent as uh, as a word of emotion, but Mencken is a historian of language. He's an etymologist of the imagination. And ardent means etymologically burning. We are on fire with rhetoric. His politics bristles with pungent epithets, as if the American political world were like the snout of a sow bristling with pungent epithets, the whole history bedizened with tall talk. Now, I don't know about you, but I had to look up the word bedizened. And it is an 18th century word, which means covered in jewels or ornaments. And I can tell you that the only place that Mencken could have found this word was in the great Samuel Johnson's dictionary of 1755. But what are we bedizened with? We are bedizened with tall talk. What Mencken does is what many writers on English and in English always love to do, is to juxtapose the extraordinary and the ordinary, the outré and the familiar, the borrowed and the homespun, bedizened with tall talk. His fundamental institutions rest. Fundamental. Your fundament is your bottom. That's what fundamental means. It is your bottom. Your fundamental institutions, like your rear end resting on brilliant phrases rather than logical exercise, rather than logical ideas. And so what we see in Mencken and, and all the writers I'm interested in that I'm sharing with you today is the way that they enact in their own writing what they're talking about. That is, Mencken and Webster are using the historical resources of the language, recognizing that certain words are old and certain words are new, in order to talk about language change in an evocative way. Now, in preparing for this talk and in doing my research, I went online to a website called UrbanDictionary.com. Some of you may know UrbanDictionary.com. It purports to be a lexicon of contemporary speech of young people. And mostly it consists of long synonyms for private body parts and various expressions for throwing up. But UrbanDictionary.com, if you look up English, you get a language that lurks in dark alleys, beats up other languages, and rifles through their pockets for spare vocabulary, right? I mean, is the American bedizened? I mean, what are we? Or are we like a homeless person lurking in an alley? You got any spare spare words? Or you look up English language. Something people of the younger generation have an inexplicable difficulty in expressing. Most notably, the use of American English as a degradation. Sick. That is actually their misspelling of the traditional language where, quote, peeps talk like this, yo. Okay, so... What are we talking about? What are the idioms here? Is American English something that is adopting new words? Or are we stealing them like spare change? Are we, in some sense, passing on a legacy? Or is American English somehow changing? I was teaching my last class in American poetry this morning. And 
It was one of those moments when I was particularly happy with the insight and the level of sophistication that I was bringing to the text. And at one point, one of the students said, R.I.P. And I said, what do we R.I.P.? And he said, R.I.P., rip. And I said, well, what does this mean? He says, well, you know, like you're getting up there saying R.I.P., like rip. Like I know more than you do and you could all rest in peace. And I said, that is the story of my life. I mean, ever since I was like four years old, yes, I, I know more than you do. And I said, thank you for giving me the insight into the way in which young people are doing this. He said, but you can't ever say that. I said, why? He said, because if you said it, you'd sound like an idiot. So my question is, what good is learning this? Well, in my day, and maybe in your day, language changed in figurative ways. That is, metaphor, metonymy, and synecdoche. Figurative expression, a part for a whole, an aspect for a whole. So we would talk about suits, meaning people in power, or the tube, meaning TV, or cops, copper buttons on uniforms and things like that. That is, colloquial English was about making metaphors, things standing for others. Vernacular change for my generation, and I'm talking about people who grew up after the Second World War in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, is very much about registers from different identity and class groups. So what does that mean? That means the way in which African-American culture, idiom, music, uh, uh, dance, and poetry, how the African-American vernacular had an impact on American speech outside of African-American communities. Or here in Southern California, the way in which we are acutely aware of living very often in a bilingual community in which code switching across English and Spanish, in which idioms from Spanish come into English, and in which idioms from English come into Spanish operate. And so one aspect of language change for my generation was the way in which different registers or different languages came into contact. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York in the 1950s and 60s in a Yiddish-speaking household. And so various Yiddishisms were part and parcel of the American English of my community, even among people who weren't Jewish. So, for example, the suffix nick, which ultimately comes from Slavic languages, uh, meaning a diminutive or uh, uh, someone who is participating in something. For example, Sputnik, which was Russian for little traveler, became Beatnik, or it became Nudnik, or fill-in-the-blank Nick. Any one of a number of these various kinds of expressions. And so when we grew up surrounded by other languages, we very often adopted the vocabulary, the phrasing, or the idiom, and that's what continuously changed American spoken English. Now, I believe that for the last few decades, American vernacular English is largely changing through what I'm calling word reformation. That is the artificial splitting and recombining of morphemes. A morpheme, in linguistic terms, is the smallest meaningful unit of a word. It may be one or two sounds. So, for example, L-Y, as in quickly, he rode quickly, is the adverbial morpheme. Or ness is the morpheme that makes something into a noun. So, you take a word like Watergate, which was originally the description of a particular area in Washington, D.C., where a hotel was, where a particular break-in happened. And Watergate became, if you like, the eponym, the marker, the keyword for a political scandal. And even though the morpheme gate does not historically mean scandal, it came to mean scandal. So Watergate, White Watergate, Iran Gate, Blank Gate. This is what I'm getting at, the creativity of a, historically, breaking up words and giving their portions new meaning. Or, for example, hardware. We used to go to the hardware store. 
When I lived in Silicon Valley, many of the people that we lived with were software engineers. Where is the morpheme, if you like, of something that is made in order to assist. I had a friend who was involved in Silicon Valley, and he liked talking about vaporware, which basically was stuff that didn't exist yet. Or at one point, we were talking about the possibility of implanting chips in our brains and what will happen when they actually do that. And when, you know, you go to the store and you no longer have to whip out your credit card or your ATM card, and they scan the implant in your retina. And he said, oh, that's wetware. In other words, that's the intersection between the biological and the cybernetic. So this word where, weblog became blog. This is an invented word, to blog then. And so blogger and so on and so on. Or I love this one, explain. Well, that became mansplain, where you know a man will explain to a woman what a woman already knows. Or the way in which mansplain then generated manscape. Landscape, manscape. Manscaping is where you uh, do landscaping on your man parts. Or one of my favorites, manspreading, which is when you go on public transportation and you're sitting next to a man whose legs are spread apart taking over two seats in the subway. Text, sex plus text becomes sext. Okay. All of these are ways in which contemporary colloquial speakers of American English create new words, not by borrowing words from other languages, and not by historically going back to etymologies, but rather by artificially breaking up words into morphemes or sections that then take on new meaning and can generate a figurative language. So this is the world of, if you like, colloquial English. And the world of colloquial English is the world of the internet. Now, many people I encounter when I talk on the history of the English language, when I visit libraries and community groups, when I meet with parents of my students, have this belief that the internet has fundamentally destroyed language. And what I would like to say is this. This is what the internet did. It inverted the relationships of writing and speech as formal and informal. What does that mean? What it means is that the internet made possible, and by internet what I mean is all forms of digital communication, texting, email, Instagram, and the social media, that it took the informal arc phrasing feel of speech and made it literate. So that, for example, in email, um, the use of no punctuation or no capitalization or the use of deliberate misspellings, these are not mistakes as such. These are ways of showing how you are participating in a form of digital communication. Let me give you an example. I still write emails. Nobody under 30, I think, does email. Or if, if my undergraduates are anything to go on. So, uh, but I write emails and I write to people and I write, dear so-and-so, colon, uh, please find attached, blah, 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 sincerely yours. So I still write email as if it's a business letter and people think that I am a jerk. They think I'm patronizing and condescending. They think I'm haughty. R.I.P. So, but of course, what I don't realize is that the deliberate informality of email is a form of authenticity, that it is a way of showing that you are yourself. This is, of course, a highly studied and artificial form of authenticity. But what my example shows is that the rhetoric of one mode of communication does not translate to another mode. Now, let's talk about emojis and let's talk about texting. Now, many of you might remember a time when there were clamshell phones. Many of you will no doubt remember when there were push-button phones. Many of you may remember when we actually dialed the telephone. I had a conversation recently with some people in which they were reminiscing about a party line. Now, none of this would make sense to most of my undergraduates. But what does make sense are these highly abbreviated phrases from old texting. So back in the day of clamshells, it was very difficult 
to send a text because you had to press the button several times and you had to be very careful about it. You did not have the virtual keyboard that you have on an iPhone or a smartphone. So texting was a way originally of coping with a non-keyboard phone. And the way that you did that was with abbreviations. And here are some abbreviations that I personally received throughout my life. BRB, be right back. OMG, oh my God. LOL, lots of laughs. DWPKOTL, deep, wet, passionate kiss on the lips. I-L-I-C-I-C-O-N-L-P. I I laughed, I cried, I spilled coffee on my laptop. I think that was what it was. So the point I'm getting at is that these kinds of phrasing in a technology that enables you to write complete sentences in full words, these are no longer what they once were. Abbreviations, things for efficiency. They are now part of code and they have virtually come part of language. So what does it mean to look at all of these emojis? So these emojis are ways of communicating not so much linguistic as emotional response. And my personal view is that we are in effect returning to a kind of hieroglyphic or pictographic world. You could write an entire sentence in emojis. One of my favorite emojis, which I do not have here, but I'm going to share with you anyway, is the smiling poop emoji. Some of you may be familiar with it. It is a steaming pile of poop with bright eyes and a big smile. And I thought to myself, how would I use the smiling poop? What what would possibly be the occasion in which I could use the smiling poop emoji? And I came to realize that at my age, the smiling poop emoji would certainly function as a kind of celebratory moment when I would let my wife say, you know, that I'm 66 years old and, you know, had a good one. So I don't know any other possible situation in which one would use it. I love the sunglass smile. I love the wink. I love the angel. I love the laugh. The point I'm making about emojis is that they represent an idiom. Now, it's very difficult to translate. I'm going to tell another story because we're all adults here. I was texting my wife several years ago, and I wanted to know what she wanted for dinner. And I was going to the store, and we were going through a vegetarian phase at the time. And so my wife thought we would be very clever and we'd send emojis to each other. So she sent me the emoji of an eggplant. Now, I thought this was an emoji to tell me to go to Whole Foods and buy an eggplant. Little did I know that for my undergraduates, that emoji meant something else entirely. And so I called this attention to my wife. And um, needless to say, we are no longer vegetarians. Language and authority. Now, back in the day, rhetoric was something that was valued. America is, as Mencken said, a place of ardent rhetoricians. And if you look at the history of American public oratory, it is the history of eloquence. 19th century orators like Daniel Webster or Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass, these were masters of the clause. They were controllers of idiom. There was a lilt, a phrase, a sound to their language that was borrowed from Latin and that was learned from works like the famous book, The Columbian Orator, teaching you how to speak. And so Lincoln could say famously, four score and seven years ago, Our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. This is a famous piece of rhetoric. Four score and seven years ago, the biblical resonance that the life of a man is three score and ten. So four score and seven is a way of saying it's beyond the memory of pretty much anybody here. Four score and seven, our fathers brought forth. That is alliteration, the repetition of the initial sound. Four and fourth, assonance, the repetition of a vowel sound. Upon this kind, a new nation conceived in liberty. There is a flow to this. 
And Gary Wills in his wonderful Pulitzer Prize winning book, Lincoln at Gettysburg, which came out now, I think, almost 30 years ago. Gary Wills goes through Lincoln's speech, 272 words of it, that to show us how carefully crafted it is and how it stays in the mind because it is rhetorically organized. Think of FDR. All we have to fear is fear itself. JFK, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. This is an example of rhetorical chiasmus, a crossing, A-B-B-A, your country, you, you, your country. And Kennedy, or, you know, to give credit where credit is due, Ted Sorensen, who probably wrote this speech, recognized that to create powerful, memorable public language, it had to be organized rhetorically. Now, I have a theory, which is to say that the legacy of war, conflict, and social upheaval in the 1960s and 70s undermined the public trust in official language. That is, the way in which, for example, terminate with extreme prejudice, or the way in which words like pacification came to be recognized as official euphemisms, that we came rather not to trust, but to mistrust officials speaking. We came to mistrust language itself. And furthermore, people in positions of authority came to relish the paraphrastic, the coded, the euphemistic, that the job of language was in fact not to reveal, all we have to fear is fear itself, but to conceal. Let me give you one of my favorite examples from the late Donald Rumsfeld in 2002. Reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me, because as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know, we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And if one looks through the history of our country and other free countries, it is the latter category that tends to be the difficult ones. This is American official rhetoric at its most, almost self-parodic. It's, if you, I mean, it is Dr. Seussian in its absurdity. But the point I'm trying to say is this. This is the environment in which younger people grew up mistrusting public eloquence. The idea that language represented something, the idea that there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between what you said and what you meant and what was out there in the world, that broke. And in that break, you get irony, you get distance, you get the world of whatever. In fact, if you look up whatever in the great Oxford English Dictionary, you'll see the transformation of how this became a marker, not of representing something, but of the refusal to represent, if you like. The use of whatever in that way is a way of basically saying, you know what? Words, whatever. I am no longer going to use language to represent. Now, many people feel that language is changing in these ways, and that it's difficult to accept these changes, or that somehow changes are violating. And this question about language and public trust operates in a couple of uses, and I want to call attention to a few of them. And the ones I'm calling attention to are those issues in American speech today where many people that I encounter seem to be angry, upset, or to put it another way, if I'm sitting on a plane or sitting in a sitting at the airport or sitting in a restaurant and someone asks me what I do and what I'm interested in, the first thing they will say will be, how come they means one person? So I will say, all right, 
English used to be like most languages in that there were two forms of the second person. There was a formal and a plural form, you. And there was an informal and singular form, thou. And this corresponded pretty much to vous and tu in French, or sie and du in German, or usted and tu in Spanish, and so on and so on. And throughout the periods of English, well into the early 18th century, people made distinctions between them. Thou was the language of intimacy. You would talk to a dog, a child, a beloved. You'd talk down to someone in thou. You would be somebody that you didn't know, a superior, or a group of people. And part of what happened was that you became normalized and thou became archaized. Because largely, in the case of the King James Bible, thou was perceived to be heightened discourse, even though it was the informal. In European languages, people pray to God in the informal. Thou do too because you establish a relationship of intimacy. The other point being that the Quakers were famous for theeing and thouing everybody, not because they were necessarily formal or archaic, but because they felt that everybody should be on the same place, that we should have an informal relationship, a personal relationship with everyone. So really by the end of the 18th century, thou and you become marked, as it were. You is the standard and thou is the non-standard. So what does this have to do with they? Well, they has been used as a singular since the 14th century. For example, I looked it up in the OED. The first example is from 1450. That is when you are referring to an individual in a clause, like the student they said, or Lord Chesterfield from 1759. If a person is born of a gloomy temper, they cannot help it. Or when somebody becomes prime minister, they're immediately put on a pedestal. So they used to refer to an individual is absolutely historical. They came to be adopted by individuals of non-traditional gender identity as a way of signaling difference. So the difference between he and she and they, the earliest example in the Oxford English Dictionary is 2009, although I think it's actually much earlier than that. That's probably the earliest form that it appears in uh, in something of published writing. So the point I'm trying to make is this, that grammatically and historically, they used to refer to a singular is absolutely there. That precedent comes to be adopted by individuals who will self-name, and who will invite us to name them as theys. So this is not a mangling of language or something that is quote-unquote ungrammatical. Let's talk about uptalk. Uptalk is the linguistic term for the international feature of American spoken English in which sentences end with a rising voice as if asking a question. Now, I go out of my way to end every sentence as if it is the end of a sentence. But many of my students would say that they end the sentence as if it's the end of a sentence. And this came to be associated with Southern California Valley speak of the 70s and 80s, but it really is universalized now. And I feel very strongly that most people speak in uptalk. It may be gender specific, more women than men may speak in uptalk, and it certainly creates the impression I'm suggesting here of requesting approval or agreement. In other words, the reason for doing this is because you actually don't trust the language. Gets back to my sense of language and public trust. So if everything is a question, you're asking for your interlocutor to say yes. So if I were to do this entire talk in uptalk, I would say it makes every statement into a question and you say yes. Yes, it makes every statement into a question. So this is the idea and the, if you like, verbal equivalent of uptalk. If uptalk is a matter of intonation, the lexical version of uptalk 
is the use of the word like. Like is, of course, historically the marker of emotional equivocation or grammatical statement or emphasis. So I'm like, hello, and she's like, how are you? This is using like instead of saying said or quote. She's like really beautiful. Well, is she really beautiful or not? Is he putting like sprinkles on his face? Well, is he putting sprinkles on his face or is he not putting sprinkles on his face? The use of the word like in these and many other sentences is a way of saying language is not sufficient. I'm not sure what I'm saying here. I am not making an assertion. I'm making an association. And I believe, as I've said, that this is all part of a social attitude towards language in which doubt, in which insecurity, and in which the refusal to accept eloquence comes to stand for sincerity or authenticity. I speak in complete sentences. My mother was a speech therapist. She taught us in Brooklyn to speak in a certain way. I was given a public lecture in, I don't know, Denver, I think, and it was before the pandemic, and there must have been 400 people in the audience. And the first question, someone raised a hand, and they asked, are you from Brooklyn? And I said, well, that's a very interesting question. How can you tell? And he said, you sound like someone who is trying so hard to sound like someone who's not from Brooklyn that you must be from Brooklyn. So I come off as a sort of magnificent artifact to my undergraduates. Complete sentences, ending sentences down, trying to avoid like and you know, and other markers that really are not markers of waiting. They are markers of doubting. Now, there are a couple of new terms that have come in that are very controversial. One of them is woke. Woke, according to the OED, was a regional and non-standard, actually an African-American usage. So to be woke was to be aware, to be awakened to certain kinds of things. And as early as 1962, woke came to mean well-informed, up-to-date, alert to racial or social discrimination or injustice. Woke now has come to be parodic or derogatory. That is, it is a way of criticizing those who seem to be too alert to racial or social discrimination and injustice at the expense of what? At the expense of common sense, at the expense of traditional values and language and so on. And then, of course, the other is the word cancel and the way in which the idea of cancel culture to reject or to uh, get rid of a thing, especially in the context of social media. So woke and cancel are two terms that I think of as pressure points or nodal points, if you like, in debates on the relationship between language and society, language change and generation, and furthermore, language and the world. Those moments when many people want to exercise, I believe, a feeling that the world has changed too fast for them, and that it's actually easier to talk about a few words that have changed than to talk about the idea that you can no longer afford a mortgage or that your children have rejected you or that the middle class life that you thought you had doesn't exist anymore. Those are complicated questions. It's much easier to say I'm upset because people use the word they as a singular. I am going to conclude with a historical example. I am a historian of language, and I believe very strongly that there's nothing new in language, that everything can be found historically. And one of my favorite examples is from a letter written by a man named John Paston. Now, the Pastons were a very famous and wealthy family 
in Norfolk in England in the 15th and 16th century. And people study the Pastons because they wrote letters to each other. And there are literally hundreds of these letters back and forth. And they're written in a very informal, colloquial way so we can get a real sense of how people actually spoke back then. But every now and then, one of the Pastons would write a letter and kind of show off a little or want to demonstrate that they knew something of language that maybe somebody else didn't. So here's John Paston writing to his wife Agnes on June 27th, 1465. And he's writing about their son, who at that point is in his early 20s, and as my grandfather might have put it, is a bum. Item. I'm going to read this in historical pronunciation first. Item. As for your son, I let you wit, he wold he did well, but he understand in him no disposition of policy, nay of governance, as a man of the world ought to do, but only liveth and ever hath as a man dissolute without any provision. Nay, that he beseeth him nothing to understand switch matters, as a man of livelihood must needs understand. Nay, he understand nothing of what disposition he purposeth to be, but only he can think he would dwell again in your house and mean, and there eat and drink and sleep. As for your son, you know well he never stood you nor me in profit, aise or help to the valor of ungrot. Now, do I need to translate? Some things I think are eternal, right? As for your son, you know and I know that when the son is bad, he's your son. And John Paston writing to his wife Agnes is using the formal you, madam, as to your son. I just want you to know that I believe he would act well, I'm translating, but I understand in him no disposition of policy or governance as a man of the world ought to have. But he only lives and always has as a man dissolute without any provision for the future. And he does not understand anything about the way in which he should live, his livelihood. Now, I don't understand anything about what he proposes to be, what kind of person he proposes to be. But I can only think that he wants to dwell again in your house and mine and there eat and drink and sleep. And as for your son, he never did anything that profited me or made things easy or helped me to the value of a groat. A groat is the smallest coin in early English currency. So at one level, we could just say, oh, yes, it's the it's the angry dad letter. It's the dissolute son letter. But this is a very carefully crafted letter by someone who knows that the English language is changing. And what John Paston recognizes is that in 1465, the way that English was changing, among others, was that it was adopting new words from French. And that these words from French were words of learned vocabulary. They were polysyllabic, long words. And they were words for particular institutions of government or control. And in the history of English, we can talk about heart and we can talk about courage. We can talk about food and we can talk about cuisine. When we use words like government, when we go to the, uh, when we go to trial and where there's a, a voir dire or there's a verdict, these are all words from French that in the 14th and 15th century enter English because French is the prestige language of England since the Norman Conquest. And by the 14th and 15th century, French has become normalized as a language of social privilege. So what does this mean? John Paston, much like H.L. Mencken, who can juxtapose bedizened and tall talk, John Paston can adopt the paternalistic rhetoric of the learned Gallophone father. Disposition, policy, governance, dissolute, provision, disposition, purpose. But when he talks about what his son is going to do, he's going to eat and drink and sleep. English words, 
monosyllabic words right there. And when he makes the analogy, it's to a groat. It's to a piece of English currency. So what does this letter tell us? What it tells us is that the relationships between people are linguistic. That very often when we are looking at generational change, we're looking at linguistic change. And that there are the resources of language that people can use in order to define relationships of authority or relationships of belonging. One could argue that John Paston would remind us of those school children of Rebecca Mead's London teenager, man's gotta cool down. So this idea of advice, power of belonging. This is generational. What have I tried to do with you today? I've tried to illustrate some of the ways in which English, especially American English, is always changing. I've tried to show how particular views of American English are views about adaptability and change, language keyed to national character. And in my final little example, I've tried to show how a parental relationship to a child can be expressed in a form of English changing during the lifetime of the writer and used with self-consciousness about old and new expressions. And so every time we speak, every time we address someone of the younger generation or a peer, or in my case, every time I speak to myself, and I speak to myself quite often because I have a captive audience in that way. I'm always asking myself, what is the pose I'm taking? Will I speak in everyday commonplace? Will I use rhetoric? Are my words representing the world? And what happens when others see me trying to take on another language and, as it were, impersonate someone else? So I leave you with the thought to watch your language, to think about your speech, and to recognize that nothing is new, everything is changing, and that we need to wake up to a new form of English that we ourselves may not share, but that can be as creative, as poetic, and as imaginative as any that we've had in our lifetime. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.